This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, tomorrow is Rare Disease Day. Joanne Paquette from Rare Disease Rules tells you about it. For the Culture is a CBC documentary series that explores stories affecting black communities around the world. Host Amanda Paris gives you some insights. And Yale University wants to reincorporate standardized tests in their admission process. Elizabeth Moeller weighs in with her thoughts. Thank you for stopping by wherever you might be out there in the viewer vortex or listener land. Let's jump in with the top story of the day. Housing Minister Sean Fraser has announced funding for eight home builders working on innovation in the sector. Fraser outlines the funding. It's going to involve a total investment of $123 million from the federal government, which we expect will uh, yield more than 5,600 homes, uh, affordable homes, uh, across Canada. Fraser lays out the types of housing being built. Uh, the kinds of projects that are going to benefit from uh, this uh, particular round of funding includes uh, modular housing that's building affordable housing units and missing middle units uh, with panelization. The money is coming from the Affordable Housing Innovation Fund. A new Leger poll has asked Canadians about the state of the economy. Karen Rebo has the answer. The poll also asked respondents about the state of their finances. 61% said their household finances are good or very good, but 48% said they're living paycheck to paycheck, a problem most acute for people under 55. Karen Rebo, The Canadian Press. And in a related story, the U.S. Consumer Confidence Index shows that American people disagree with economists about the state of the economy. Haya Panjwani crunches the numbers. The Conference Board, which is a business research group, said its Consumer Confidence Index is down over four points this month since January. It went from 110.9 to 106.7. The index is a way to measure Americans' assessment of economic conditions and its outlook for the next six months. Economists pay close attention to consumer confidence, since consumer spending accounts for about 70% of American economic activity. The index was improving for three straight months before this decline. The drop comes as a bit of a surprise, since the economy has shown resilience and higher interest rates and inflation. Haya Panjwani, Washington. Macroeconomics versus microeconomics. I know I bang that drum for you often, even if you go back to that Karen Rebo story. 60% of Canadians say, yeah, the economy is all right. And then the other 40% are saying, I'm going paycheck to paycheck here. So, yeah, the micro versus the macro. Always worth keeping in mind when people are rambling on about the economy. In fact... I'm thinking I might pitch that to certified financial planner Ryan Chin for his segment next Wednesday, and he can share his perspective for you. One more story for you, and it's one that jumped off the page to me that I thought deserved a little more examination. The head of the RCMP has given an update on a cyber attack that targeted the force. Emily Javesky has the latest. 
RCMP Commissioner Mike Duhame says personnel worked around the clock on the weekend to probe the breach that targeted the force's networks. Duhame says he was briefed this morning on the breach and describes the latest assessment as good news. The Mounties said last Friday they had launched a criminal investigation, calling a breach of that magnitude alarming. Emily Joveski, the Canadian Press. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. On Tuesday, you were asked, what is the low-tech life hack that improves your quality of life? Over on X, Studio Brock posts in lots of great suggestions on the show. Thank you, Brock. I'll add a low-tech add-on to a high-tech item many of us have, an iPhone. MagSafe accessories and chargers are so nice. If you have an iPhone, it's probably always with you why not slap a wallet battery or glasses case on it over on facebook tony writes in my vest that says i'm hard of hearing for work so most folks know to come around me and face me along with his comment he shares a picture of his blue vest with an image of an ear and yellow beams emitting the vest reads hard of hearing please face me when asking for help sherry comments living simply with minimal Clutter. I like that one. Uh, living that decluttered lifestyle. Minimalist action for Sherry over there on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. Thank you for everybody who chimed in and voted on the poll. Today's daily poll requires just a little bit of setup from the world of news. The University of Waterloo is removing 29 vending machines from campus that use facial recognition technology. I don't necessarily need you to react to that story. I want to hear about your relationship with facial recognition technology in general. Is your relationship good, bad, or are you unaware of your relationship with facial recognition tech? At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Just a little extra clarification here. The company that makes these vending machines claims there's no storage or communication of the facial recognition tech. It's simply used for motion sensor reasons to put the screen on. Laura Bain. I do not explicitly use any facial recognition tech with my technology. I prefer to unlock my phones with thumbprints or fingerprints or pin codes uh, because of my squinty eyes. Sometimes the facial recognition tech doesn't work at all. So I would say I go through this world blissfully unaware of when I'm interacting with facial recognition tech, but my vibe on it is bad. So I know I've kind of given you a complex answer to give you the opportunity to react to the question. Well, you know, my answer is sort of twofold as well. I guess I feel like I have a good but probably also mostly unaware relationship with facial recognition technology. I do use it on my iPhone um, because I find that it is just uh, the convenience outweighs whatever sort of ne like nebulous negative consequence is probably out there that I'm not really understanding that I should understand the consequence of that. But uh, it's just very convenient, especially when I don't have my glasses on and I'm trying to unlock my phone with the uh, seeing the numbers on the keypad. But apart from how I use it with my phone, I'm not really aware of encountering facial recognition software in my day-to-day -day life. Now, I probably am encountering it. Oh, yes, it. you are. Oh, yes, you um, are. I'm not. Uh, I, I can see how 
you know, passwords, for example, are, it's becoming evident that that's no longer the best way to keep our information safe. And I think we sort of have to be open to other options, whether they be these sort of like, are they called biometrics, I think, for mm -hmm, mm -hmm. how to keep our, our stuff secure. But uh, so I, I'm open to it, but I do think there's lots of issues with the technology um, that needs to be addressed. For example, it uh, does a better job of recognizing light skin than dark, dark skin. So that, um, you know, clearly is a, a problem and exacerbates existing inequities. So uh, good, unaware, uh, some mild concerns, mostly not understanding. <laughs> so I like how you've run, you've run the full gambit there. You ran the full <laughs> gambit of all the options. Yeah, a few examples of places where it's popping up. It's showing up in places like malls. It's showing up in stores. A lot of self-checkout machines are now using cameras mm -hmm. and facial recognition to look for uh, repeat offenders who aren't scanning the barcode properly on their cheese. Not that I'm not that I'm uh, talking about personal uh, life experience at all on that one. Uh, Alex Smythe, what is your relationship with the growing presence of facial recognition technology? Yeah, I, I think overall I'm pretty unaware because I just don't incorporate it willfully in my life in any way. Like I avoid any facial ID or anything like that within my devices or technology. I just don't want a device to purposely like have and store that information, whether it's like a random, like a random vending machine at a, at a university well, and, campus. And, and exactly. And, and the beauty is, I think everyone is very unaware of just the extent that facial recognition is out there. Cause that story, Dave, the only reason we found out about it was there was an error code that popped up on one of these vending machines that a student took a screenshot of that said, facial recognition program crashed and, and needs yeah, to be restarted. Yeah. That's what kicked it off. And then uh, further in an investigation found that Cadillac Fairview malls have been found to be using it far more extensively than they should be. So they're under heavy pressure to kind of cut back on the amount of facial recognition software they're using in their malls and their locations. So. I, I'm okay with it if people are willfully engaging with it. If you want to sign up, if you want to take advantage of it, that's fine. But when you're not aware of it, when you do not consent to it, I, I think that becomes a very big issue. So there needs to be more kind of, uh, of an open uh, kind of um, insight that, oh, we are using facial recognition here or there. Like, do you consent? Because... You know, it, it's like giving your fingerprint to someone. You don't. You you should have to consent when you're giving your your own personal identifiable markers to to a machine or someone or anyone. So, um, I don't like the idea of it being kind of hidden, and I'm blissfully unaware of how like widespread it truly yeah. is right now. Society's becoming more comfortable with the presence of cameras everywhere, and, and that is its own debate, but it's the idea of storage and tracking that I think is going to uh, send people a little bit extra off the uh, deep end here. Again, especially for something as innocuous as a vending machine. Listen, put all the motion uh, detector technology you want on there for the sake of saying, hey, we're trying to save some hydro, we're trying to be more efficient, we don't want our screen to light up unless somebody's actually using this machine, okay, cool, uh, I'm open to this conversation, but 
you don't need facial recognition software built into that. There's there's really no need. Uh, unless you're thinking about something way down the future where all of a sudden your face gets matched up to your student ID card and now there's a no cash transaction at the vending machine. Oh, but I doubt I doubt that uh, society really needs that one just yet. At Accessible Media on Twitter, excuse me, on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. I don't want Elon Musk to get mad at me. At Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also send an email feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a call, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, Rare Disease Day is tomorrow. Joanne Paquette tells you about her advocacy work with Rarezy's Rule. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Rare Disease Day is tomorrow. It brings attention to the nearly 7,000 rare diseases affecting over 300 million people worldwide. Joanne Paquette is the CEO and founder of Rarezy's Rule. Hey, good morning, Joanne. Nice to chat with you today. Hey, good morning, Dave. It's wonderful to chat with you today. I'd like to let you know and our viewers know that I'm wearing a T-shirt right now that represents our um, Rare Disease Day event tomorrow and supporting all in rare diseases. So it reads as follows, Rare Disease Day rarediseasedate.org and there's a hashtag there of course rare is strong proud and many and i'd like to add independent and proud to that as well um again and rarecies rule on it on the back of our t-shirt it says rarecies rule flag racing ceremony our fifth anniversary rare disease day 2024 the reason for these t-shirts, if I could quickly, Dave, is that we're selling them to raise funds so that we can get a street sign that says Rarecy's Rule Way and open up the community with other rare disease names, bringing awareness, which is so key for us. I, you know, I, I think you've you've laid a lot on the table right there, Joanne. That's worth that's worth unpacking. Uh, it, you mentioned you mentioned the flag the flag raising ceremony tomorrow in the city of Ottawa. What's going on? So we'll be um, hosting our fifth anniversary, as mentioned, of the flag racing ceremony at the Marion Dewar Plaza, City Hall, 110, sorry, Loria Avenue West at 9.30 a.m. Um, so there'll be people from CHEO there, which is wonderful, Care for Rare. We'll have people there from CORD as well, which is the Canadian Organization of Rare Diseases or Disorders. Um, and um, of course, the public and a wonderful father coming in from Kingston with his son who is uh, with Care for Rare at Geo. Um, so we raise the flag, we have a few comments, and then we get to chit chat a bit. What are you hoping that people take away from Rare Disease Day, whether they're attending that event in Ottawa in particular or whether they're uh, joining the Momentum and Initiative online? Um, 
awareness is key for us. So um, come and meet wonderful, strong people. Uh, we are many. A lot of people don't realize that rare diseases exist. Show your colors. The zebra is our mascot. Um, but Rare Disease Day is, is an important day. It, it brings our community out of um, quietness, and we need to be loud. How has the day evolved since you started it five years ago? Um, actually, this is going to be our biggest year, which is I'm really proud of because we've had the work with Chio um, and Court as well. Um, and um, it, it just, you know, it, we've had the mayor, Mr. Watson, attend before he left the city. Um, and, you know, we have our deputy mayor attending this year as well. So it, it just, it, it it really um, has come further and people are learning about it. Um, my hope is to also get it into the education curriculum. Mm. What are some other activities that are planned for the day, maybe uh, even outside of Ottawa, or is it strictly an Ottawa event? No, actually, there's events all over the world. Thanks for asking that, Dan, because it's, um, you know, San Diego has one a huge event that's all day um, with a few DJs and everything. They've got the weather for it, so <laughs> that helps. Um, Singapore has stuff. Thailand has events. Toronto has events. Um, this is the event in Ottawa, as mentioned, but there's stuff that happens all over the globe. If you go to rarediseasedate.org, you'll find there where you can find an event near you. Joanna, I can tell that this is something that you're very passionate about. Why did you start your own organization? Why did you start Rarezy's Rule? Um, you know, I really started it really for my not my disease, but the disease that I suffered from. I was diagnosed with multiple enchondromatosis, a.k.a. Olier's disease. Um, I think it was early 1965. I've had 50 surgeries to date. Um, I was a guinea pig, but I was alone. You know, I was either in the hospital or at home. Where did I fit in? I couldn't talk to anybody about this. And when I finally found somebody else with the disease, 47 years later, I realized maybe this is why I'm here. And so I created Rare Seeds Rule. And from there, I wanted all Rare Seeds to, to ensure they could find support and bring awareness for their family. What kind of work are you doing year-round through Rarecy's Rule? You mentioned that the fundraising component tomorrow is about creating that, that street sign, but what's some of the work that you're doing year-round? Uh, the advocacy work obviously doesn't begin and end tomorrow on February 29th. That's right. That's right. Thank you. Um, actually, um, our organization raises funds for educational scholarships. Uh, we're the only one um, for rare diseases in Canada that does this. Um, so we're always looking for sponsorships. We're always looking for donations. We want these kids to succeed. And education is extremely important. And offering this to the child also brings relief to the parents um, because 
you don't know the future of their child of their child and you know what you want them to be secure and in this day and age we need that um and education helps and uh, a stepping stone there with our educational scholarship program uh can give that you gave chio a couple shout outs here just for the national audience uh -huh. the children's hospital of eastern ontario how critical a partner have they become for you and the organization in doing this advocacy work and also offering service to people with rare diseases that's a great question dan uh care for rare um uh, which was founded by dr kim boycott who will be at the uh, flag raising ceremony tomorrow and will have a few words for us as well. Um, it is such an important component that we collaborate, that we work together. Um, I am a volunteer at the Research Institute with Dr. Leanne Ward, who is head of pediatrics for rare skeletal diseases. I'm a member of CARDS, which is the Canadian Alliance of Rare Disorders, of Rare Skeletal Disorders. Um, so th this all working together, as well as CORE, the Canadian Organization for Disorders, we need to collaborate so that um, awareness is brought and components of importance of structure are also brought to the government. Joanne, I've got the websites handy. I'll plug those again on the way out. But you also mentioned there is a hashtag for folks to get involved. Uh, what is it? There's hashtag rare disease rule, and there's hashtag rare disease day, and hashtag raredisease.org. Well, Joanne, I hope tomorrow ends up being a marvelous day at Ottawa City Hall. Uh, oh, I've got a, I've got a lot of fond memories of kicking around that neck of the woods. So thank <laughs> thank you for taking the time today. I know you're very busy here with the lead up to the event tomorrow. All the best to you and your colleagues, and I hope you get a chance oh. to enjoy the day. Thank you so much, Dan. I am uh, back to you and happy Rare Disease Day to every Rarezy out there Absolutely. and their family. 100%. That's Joanne Paquette Thanks. in Ottawa. Joanne is the founder and CEO of Rarezy's Rule. Rare Disease Day is tomorrow, February 29th. For more information, you can visit raredisease.day.org rarediseaseday.org and to learn more about Joanne's organization visit raresiesrule.ca raresiesrule.ca r-a-r-e-s-i-e-s -E thank you very much to Joanne for uh, taking the time to talk a little bit about her work coming up after the break there is a rise in loneliness across North America. Wellness advocate Shane Baker discusses the importance of social connection. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. to now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Research shows that nearly half the adult population experiences measurable loneliness in the United States. Those numbers have been on the rise for years. It's especially noticeable in people aged 15 to 24. Research shows that they spend 70% less face-to-face -face time with friends than 20 years ago. 
There are consequences to spending less time with people, including an increased risk of heart disease and stroke. Shane Baker is a health and wellness advocate. He wants to share some of his experience. Hey, good morning, Shane. Nice to chat with you today. Great to be here today, Dave. So, Shane, I laid out some stats there, but what got you thinking about social connection? Yeah, I think, um, you know, if if anything, the pandemic really impacted our, our um, connection with others around us, whether that be our family or friends, our co-workers. Um, we were basically asked overnight to um, minimize our social interaction with those that we that we love and care for overnight. And although we're a few years into the pandemic, I think that that is something that some that people like myself and, and I'm sure many others out there still really struggle with. And that's trying to find a healthy balance of making sure that we, um, you know, minimize our risk factors personally. But also, we also need to remember that if those statistics that you um, just shared with us are true, um, that this is something that we really need to pay attention to because this has real life impacts on our on our health and wellness. You mentioned some cardiovascular. Um, you know, we also think about anxiety and depression. And you know, I've seen some of these articles, and the headlines are quite scary. And I think it's something that we all need to be really aware of right now. Yeah, just, just for a little bit of uh, context, that data all comes from, from the U.S. Surgeon General. So this is definitely peer-reviewed academic research from where some of that numbers come from. There's also elements of early-onset dementia for people who experience less yeah. social interaction. So, Shane, you mentioned the pandemic where the world ran to Zoom in a, uh, a pretty much en masse over the course of a mm -hmm. couple of days. And, and technology did create a bridge. How did it bridge the gap for you? Well, at the time, I was going to school, and and basically, like you said, overnight we we shifted immediately to um, to online classes, virtual classrooms, and um, you know, as somebody who has um, you know different medical and health problems, you know, switching to that virtual environment was a real lifesaver. I I, I know at, at the end of it, it, it kind of got a little bit tough, but I know early on, um, you know, having that technology really helped me connect with my classmates, my instructors, and even some of my family and friends. So I think technology definitely has a really important role to play. What's your experience been like building community online? Yeah, I think it's been something that I've had to learn how to do. And, um, you know, it's funny enough, one of the programs that AMI puts out, uh, Double Tap, was actually one of the first programs that introduced me to, um, you know, to the broadcasting at AMI. And I, I, I know I still watch that show today. And, and, you know, I get to know some of the people who call in, people who send emails, and you actually get a chance to kind of get to know, e know each other. And I think that these online communities have have a, a really important role to play too. Shane, I'll do the full plug for them, seeing as how you shouted them out, because I love those guys too. Uh, double tap <laughs> double tap daily on AMI-audio, noon to 1 p.m. Eastern time. You can also uh, download the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. And don't forget about Access Tech Live, Thursdays, That's noon right. Eastern time on AMI-tv. So lots and lots and lots of great contact there. And Shane, I do think what they do 
is just a beautiful model in terms of the community interacting within itself. I know there's a radio show that I listen to out of Miami uh, called The Dan Lebitard Show, where it's not just the show that gives me engagement. You should yeah. see the Reddit page for that show. Because, <laughs> like, the conversations and people all around the world gathering, talking about just the podcast they listen to every day, it, like, it's remarkable, like, the connection that you make with people all around the world that you end up becoming sort of, you end up in these side conversations becoming yeah. side friends with people sounds wonderful <laughs> it is kind of wonderful but <laughs> yeah, but shane there is a flip side here on the technology side of the conversation i like connecting with my friends all over the world at this point i like meeting some new people but it doesn't quite scratch the itch in the same way as spending time in person with people. I, I, I just think I just think that connection is a little bit different and a little bit more nurturing. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I've thought about too. And I, so I'm, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I think there's been a tendency to kind of keep that social interaction and engagement with others too strictly in an online or virtual way. And, um, you know, I worked, um, you know, for a while and I was remote working most of the time. I spent much of my last two, three years of my university in a virtual classroom. And, and I have to be honest with you, it took a real impact on me. And, and so one of the things that I've had to, to shift and, and just like other, every other people around the world is trying to learn how to be able to engage with others around me so I can actually go in and have a coffee with somebody or, you know, go for a walk or, um, you know, or just have a chat on the street with some of my friends that uh, live in my area. You know, I, even, even a few minutes can make a big difference in your day. Um, you know, so I think it's definitely something that we need to be careful of and that we need to make sure that we have a balanced social life that has a little bit of online or virtual engagement, but also face-to-face, -face, it's a really important thing. Well, it's really easy to get sucked down that whirlpool, right? It's really easy to, well, I don't want to say easy. It's a, I don't like that word. Mm -hmm. It's a little more straightforward and a little bit less logistically challenging to spend yeah. time online or end up in a text thread or a group chat or, or just something that sort of makes you feel like you're engaged, but ultimately you're still kind of in the living room by yourself with a screen. Yeah. And I, I just think there's a warmth that comes with being people in person. I also think especially as you start building out the group. I, I think that once you sort of pass the number of four or five people in a Zoom chat, you're no longer having a conversation. You're just having monologues. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, I just think that the human thing matters. Okay, Sean, uh, Sean, Shane, someone called me Dan last segment. Now I'm calling you Sean. No we're spinning, we're spiraling here. We're spiraling. Totally. Uh, Shane, I, I would say that one of my absolute favorite ways to spend time with people is let's call it two to three people together at a table having dinner or drinks. Like to me, when you sort of get that table with four people sitting together, breaking bread, being with one another, engaging for a couple of hours. To me, that's my absolute favorite way to spend time with people in person. What's yours? I think I'd have to agree with you, with you, Dave. I know that when me and my fiance have uh, family or friends over and just sitting around enjoying a meal together, maybe bringing out the deck of cards to play some games or, or we, we have plans to get a Ramoli board so we can get the game going and, and uh, build up a little competition. I think any, anything like that I'm, I'm eager to do. Um, so, you know, I think it's just, just an opportunity to sit down and relax and have some enjoyment with our friends and family.
board games. I like that one. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but you know, Shane, I'm, I'm going to go back to the idea of deliberate. The one thing is, is that that unless you are uber popular, you have to be deliberate sometimes in making these yeah. plans. You can't just wait for them to come yeah. you, it, to you. It requires action, which, by the way, is one of the things that can actually be affirming about the whole process because it forces yeah. you to do the action of reaching out, get the response and planning something. Like, it actually gives you a sense of accomplishment. I, I, I don't mean to be glib about Definitely. it. I, I think there's truth to that. The idea of organizing something is an accomplishment. Yeah, definitely. And then you get that reward of that event coming together and you're getting a chance to be around your friends and, and share a laugh and some memories with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Shane, thank you for this, my friend. I always appreciate you waking up early there on Vancouver Island to chat with me at 6.30 a.m. local time. All the best to you and the fiancé, and we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Have a great day. That's Shane Baker, a health and wellness advocate. Coming up in 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the generalized spring forecast for Canada. Alex Smythe is sort of playing a Groundhog Day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes. Canada's main stock index was little changed yesterday as bank earnings began to roll in. Toronto's TSX index slipped five points to close at 21,318. New York's Dow Jones average lost 96 points and the Nasdaq gained 59. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 31 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 73.64 cents US. We all get an extra 24 hours to 2024 with this leap year. And salary employees might be wondering whether they'll be getting paid extra for working on February 29th. Employment lawyer Brittany Taylor says leap year comes every four years, but this is one of the first times she's heard questions about a leap day paycheck. She says hourly workers come out the winners tomorrow because they will get paid for the hours they work, but it could look different for those on salary who aren't entitled to extra compensation just because there is an extra day in a month every four years. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you very much, Karen. Let's turn to Alex Smythe for the weather story of the day. Alex, not quite a weather story of the days, a weather story of the season. Spring is still three weeks ahead, but forecasters are already trying to make some generalized predictions. Yeah, they always like to bring out these kind of forecasts of what we can expect from the season ahead. And Let's just say unpredictability has been the name of the game when it comes to winter. It's expected to be similar when it comes to spring overall. So you're going to see more dramatic temperature swings. You go from like we're expected to see over the next couple of days, you get very cold and then back to kind of temperate conditions. And then you get a blast of winter and then you get really warm. So that's going to be kind of some of these sudden bursts you'll expect throughout the spring season overall there will be above seasonal temperatures across most of the country. The northern stretches of the central region, including northern Manitoba, Nunavut, and parts of northern Quebec, they will see a more near normal temperature range during the spring season. This will also extend to the maritime region in parts like Halifax and St. John's, which will experience near normal temperatures. Now, we've had a very uh, kind of underwhelming amount of snowfall this season, and the low amounts uh, of snowfall has meant there's going to be not a lot of concerns when it comes to flooding when uh, this spring season comes, which is normally the case. But 
On the flip side, it does mean there's a greater concern of wildfires because there isn't that moisture there to prevent it. So wildfire season may start far earlier yeah. than uh, I'm normal. A, I'm gonna interrupt you for one second, Alex. Mm -hmm. Wildfire season has already started in the Texas Panhandle. They're, they're experiencing yeah. a way early start to their, to their wildfire season. Yeah, and, and some parts of the prairies have already started to kind of call an early start to the wildfire season as well. So it's going to be uh, very much a concern, especially when you look at where precipitation is going to be limited. So parts of the prairies and maritime, they will see above normal uh, amounts of precipitation uh, this spring. But B.C., northern Alberta, Ontario and Quebec they're going to see below normal precipitation. And those are some of the key areas where wildfires have really devastated the regions and had a, a, a national impact, an international impact when it comes to the smoke from last year. Mm -hmm. So the rest of the country, though, they should experience near normal amounts of rainfall come this spring. So not anything truly unexpected so far in this forecast, Dave, but things that we've always kind of had a feeling of, okay, there's going to be less rain, less snow, warmer temperatures. This has kind of been the, the overall feeling that's going to carry in into spring. Alex, thank you for this. Talk to you a little bit later in the show. That's Alex Smythe at the Weather Desk. Coming up after the break, Yale University wants to reincorporate standard tests in their admission process. And some Canadian universities are calling for more standardized tests, too. Elizabeth Moeller weighs in with her thoughts. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. What's old is new again in education. Yale University wants to reincorporate standardized tests in their admission process. Standardized tests are fairly common outside of Canada. Think things like the SAT tests in the U.S. Some colleges and universities want that process to be utilized more here. Elizabeth Moeller is an academic, and Elizabeth is also the founder of EM Disability Consulting. Hey, good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Dave. Alec, uh, I, Elizabeth, I know you touched on this a few weeks ago in a slightly different conversation, but how do you feel about standardized tests as part of the post-secondary admission process? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there's some concerns, you know, certainly when I think about equity, um, you know, socioeconomic barriers, barriers to even getting to a test center, uh, accessibility barriers. I did have to take a standardized test for a program I applied to, and I, I wasn't able to receive accommodations. So I think, you know, from that perspective, I have concerns. I think your question's an interesting one, though. A part of the process, I think, there could be um, certainly some, uh, you know, merit to that as long as it's a part and there's other factors that are weighted and considered. Mm. I also, I also kind of think about like, and I don't know what your thoughts are around like, what are we trying to achieve? Like when you think about like the essential requirements of a program, what is a standardized test tell us that you're a good test taker, that you can work under pressure, that you read and write and can critically think well. And then I think about like how much of that or all of that are we looking for in, a, in an applicant and are there other areas we also need to wait? 
Yeah, I, I think that's where I land. That certainly can be part of the process. I can see the merit as being part of the process. I did a PSAT when I was in high school, just for the heck of it. They said, hey, why not? You know, maybe you are going to go to school in the States and you might want to get experienced writing one of these things. And I did really poorly. I did really poorly because it wasn't how I like to communicate or learn or test. Mm. I'm someone mm. who likes to give out thoughtful answers, not multiple choice answers to sort of bizarre questions. Amen. And and I, I but you know, but that but that speaks to who I am rather than necessarily what universities or colleges are looking for. And Elizabeth, I like what you flagged there in regard to as you went through your academic process, you did still encounter standardized testing. It's not totally mm -hmm. foreign in Canada, but no. typically it lands closer to the grad school or professional yes. school uh, side of things, right? Like the 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 LSAT tests for LSAT LSAT tests for lawyers. I swear I'm a professional broadcaster. I can talk <laughs> or the or, or the MCATs for prospective medical students. There is still some standardized testing, but it's typically one layer further down the line in the academic process. Yeah, absolutely. And and the program, I it was a professional program. And I think that was an interesting one because, and this was quite a while back, it was that in your transcript. So a lot sort of wrote on that. And I was actually doing a little bit of research for today. And I was looking at a, an institution in um, Ontario here, McMaster, and they their medical school application process is quite holistic. So they look at lots of other attributes because, you know, being a doctor, you need things like interpersonal skills and empathy and problem solving. Um, and so I think that that's, and that's a part of a committee that I've been doing some work on at Western is revamping the admissions process to be more holistic. So having things like options for people to do a video interview or an essay, um, you know, in the transcript and the test tell one part of that person's story, but it, they don't tell the whole part of that story. And so I think where, I, we, where we're both landing is I'm fine with it being a part of it. I'm even seeing some programs have an optional. So if you want to submit a test score, you can. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, that and that might be great for somebody who didn't do well and their transcript doesn't show their whole story. So I think, you know, I think there's a place for it for sure, but I think how it's administered and looking at essential course and program requirements is really important. Just a little bit more uh, to pull from here from the real world. Some provinces already have standardized criteria when it comes to high school year-end exams. Mm -hmm. For example, in Quebec, uh, they use them for language, math, history. I did really well on the history test. I got the top score in the province. How, it's a little humble brag there. How could those existing models mesh <laughs> with a push for more specific specific post-secondary standardized test using what is already in place to potentially connect to the next level of academia. Well, first of all, I want you on my trivia team. I love a good game of Canadian <laughs> trivia. Oh, I'm, I am an excellent <laughs> pub trivia player. Okay, well, we'll talk. Um, I think, you know, so in Ontario here, we have the grade 10 literacy test. And I think that that, first of all, it's a good benchmark to flag where you're at. So if there are problems and you're thinking about post-secondary, you can address those. But I think also, you know, using some of those scores as, again, um, potential bridging to connect you to programs that might be interested. So maybe you did really well in history. Um, so that could sort of flag programs of interest. It also might help, um, you know, to be a part of the application process or even a part of, you know, kind of your career coaching that you're getting in high school. So I think using those as benchmarks is really helpful just to see, especially in the grade like 10, 11, like where am I at and where do I need to sort of do the work to get where I want to go next? 
Elizabeth, one of the reasons why advocates at the academic level are pushing for more standardized testing before getting into university and college is because research shows that most first-year university students do experience a slide in their grades from where they were in high school. Why do you think that is? Is that standardized tests or is that keg stands? Yeah, I mean, I th I think there's a lot of different <laughs> Sorry. I think there's a lot of different reasons. Uh, I, you know, we have something uh, that I was a part of developing called Uni 101, You for You. Um, yes, the name is a little bit pokey, but it really looks at like the grades are going to drop. So first of all, like people are doing work more independently. Um, you're doing like three hours of work outside of the classroom for every one hour in the classroom. So like in high school, at least when I was in high school, you did a lot of your work in high school yeah, and yeah. you wanted to get it done so you could, you know, go off and do whatever. But um, I think that that's a really big change. And I think just the, the expectations and, you know, there is, you know, conversations around grade, grade inflation, um, changing expectations. And also, like, sometimes people go to university or college or trade school and they're not, it's not actually what they're interested in. They're just doing it because a guidance counselor mm, or parents suggested mm. it. So then you're getting into that whole thing, right? So I think there's a lot of different factors. I, I do think if I reflect back on my experience, even as a fossilizing human over here, uh, when I started at McGill in 2003, I just felt totally unoriented into the place. Yeah. Like orientation was like, here's a school bag and here's why a university is great rather than, hey, here's some like, really helpful. Like, yeah, well, yeah, like as opposed to here's some really uh, useful stuff about how to navigate the library and what you need to yeah. do to access student student certain student services. I I really felt like the orientation process was just not tailored at all for a student rather than an advertisement for the university when I've already given you my tuition money. Yeah, it's so true. And, you know, I think about my first experience and I just remember like as a student with a disability, I had what was called an indiv individualized education plan. And then all of a sudden in university, you're figuring all this out and like who walks you through that and how do you figure out even what you need? How do you know what you don't know? Um, so that was a really big piece for me. I totally agree with you. I was, I completely, my first year, I was completely lost. I'm surprised I passed. <laughs> my first year was actually <laughs> one of the better years on my transcripts, but again, no, 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 well, it's kind of alphabet soupy. Uh, no, no, no need to go too, too far down that road. Elizabeth, okay, I, I want to take this back a few grades, but maybe into a broader question. The province of Ontario wants to go back to some more traditional approaches when it comes to reading and math. On the reading front, it's going back to the actual ABCs of phonics-based learning. It feels like education has modernized a bit over the last few decades, but if you take this conversation that we're having about standardized tests or this phonics-based learning conversation that reporter Megan Gilmore wrote about extensively in Canadian Affairs and unpacked a little bit on the show last week, does it feel like what's old is new again in education? You're right. Like sometimes I feel like I have the same conversations and I, I started my undergrad in 2005. Um, or, and I think, well, you know, like, didn't we have this conversation about, you know, an accommodation or in this case, phonics or testing or, you know, solutions to barriers that we're facing. And it, it does sort of feel like these things sort of all coil around each other. Um, 
I, I think there's honestly, like I learned through phonics, how to read. I, I have this vision of like conjunction junction running through my head. <laughs> I'm dating myself, but I, yeah, I do feel like that. And I feel like it, especially in the disability and accommodations world where the solutions were coming up with, I'm like, but we talked about those 20 years ago. So it does feel a lot to me. Like what's old is new. Mm. Hey, Elizabeth, thank you for your perspective on this. I always appreciate walking through the halls of academia with you. It connects me to an old life of mine. All right. Well, I always like to walk them with you too, Dave. <laughs> That's Elizabeth Moeller, the founder of EM Disability Consulting. In 60 seconds, Laura Bain has the latest news in entertainment. But first, a big change is coming to the video game world. Mike Dubusky has the story in Tech Trends. For the first time, games developed exclusively for the Xbox are going to be available on a competitor's console, the Nintendo Switch. It was Obsidian Games' two titles, uh, Grounded and Pentiment. IGN's Taylor Lyle says it comes after Xbox owner Microsoft acquired developer Activision Blizzard and drew concerns Microsoft had consolidated too much power in the gaming industry. There was a whole issue of that being anti-competitive given how big of a publisher Activision Blizzard was. Other Xbox exclusives are also headed to PlayStation devices, but Lyle says this doesn't mean that all games will soon be interoperable. When you look at games like Hi-Fi Rush, which has like a cel-shaded graphic, but it's very fast-paced, it's running, I believe, at 60 frames per second, and you look at a game like Sea of Thieves, I, I couldn't see those games running on the Switch. I I'm sure they probably, I'm sure they maybe wanted to put those games on the Switch, but just couldn't because of the hardware limitations. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. There is a lot lot of conversation in the video game world about the death of the console and just finding software-based solutions. Very interesting stuff, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. Turning to the world of entertainment, not that video games aren't entertainment, new research shows that gender parity in the film industry is not improving particularly quickly in Canada. Laura Bain, what's the story here? A new study came, can you hear me? Yeah, we got you, sorry. Okay, um, so uh, this is talking about a new study called Reframing the Picture, which looked at uh, the impact of gender equity policies on the film industry in Canada, the UK, and Germany, and unfortunately, it does not paint a good picture. It found that although there are some improvements happening, at that current rate of improvement, Canada will reach gender parity in the film industry in the year 2,215, or 191 years from from now. Uh, the UK and Germany did do a bit better, so uh, reaching parity by 2085 in the UK and 2041 in Germany. Oh, that's pretty good. Mm, yeah, I thought so too. Uh, the author def definitely uh, Canada is way behind. <laughs> I guess I guess it's a matter of relativity that that's shifting the Overton window. Like, oh yeah, 2041. That's only 17 years away. <laughs> Yeah. So the author, the authors emphasize that change really needs to happen, not just broadly, but sort of in specific areas to change the culture in the industry. Uh, so, for example, in Can in Canada, we have uh, seventy eight percent of men occupying key, key creative positions, and in elite network positions in Canada, it's eighty two percent male. Mm. And now, of course, you know we can't talk about this without really talking about the U.S. I think because that is such a large industry compared to Canada. But uh, this study didn't look at that. But just to give an idea of numbers from a different study, um, 
it's going to take the U.S. 175 years to reach gender parity, specifically amongst uh, film directors. So also not a good picture down there, not surprisingly at all. Now, this report called for stronger gender equity policies uh, and accountability measures and incentives. I'm definitely interested to get your thoughts on that. But something that I thought was kind of interesting that was identified in this report is that if you're just looking at the sheer number of women and gender minorities in the film industry, improvements that you're seeing, like just in the numbers, not the percentages, are coming largely due to the expansion of the industry overall and mm. not due to mm -hmm. the displacement of men. And honestly, I have to say, Dave, that if I feel any level of optimism, I think it's there is in the broadening of the platform uh, rather than in sort of gender equity uh, uh, policies. Although I do think that broadening the platform is not going to make a difference when you're talking about those large uh, production companies and kind of big players. But what are your thoughts on kind of this report? I'm right there with you in regards to the democratization of distribution of media. Like, that really does matter, but it's small potatoes when you consider who holds the power at major studios and networks. If you look at uh, most of the big studios and networks in the United States, it's just some older white dude in his 70s. And for a long time, as Hollywood was flourishing in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, 80s, in a lot of cases, yes, there was some old money production going on. There was old money producers, but the industry was young. And what's happened mm -hmm. is there's not been a significant enough turnover at the top of the industry. Because, Laura, if you were making $25 million a year, how likely are you to walk away from that gig or just keep padding cash in your pockets? So the glass ceiling exists not just from an equity point of view, but from literally an older generation hanging on to positions of power and not allowing that upward mobility anywhere than, say, middle management. Yeah, and I think you're right to kind of identify, you know, um, it has to be a financial pain point, and right now there aren't any financial pain points. And just thinking myself, I'm certainly not an expert in this area of how you would generate those. You can, you know, look at things like film festivals having uh, gender equity uh, criteria and, uh, you know, governments that have film incentive uh, credits having those policies. But I think it is very difficult sort of at the top, those big studios to unfortunately create pain points i don't i don't mean to paint a grim picture and of course you know i i think that it's important that we not just talk about gender equity but also about intersectionality oh yeah um so are we seeing you know people of color are we seeing people with disabilities and uh lgbtq folks is all very important but uh yeah it seems like it's an industry that is a little bit uh has gotten perhaps a little bit stagnant as you've identified. Yeah. I, listen, I'm pessimistic generally about it because I think where money lies, lies power and power creates culture. And that and that makes me deeply pessimistic. I will say that growth can occur exponentially 
if there is a ladder in place, if there is a mm -hmm. pathway in place. But if there is no pathway and all the glass steel ceilings stay where they are, it doesn't matter how much you end up creating at the lowest possible levels if you don't give people the opportunity to grow in the industry. And that's become one of the big stagnation points inside the entertainment industry right now, which, by the way, is going through its own sort of collapse on the fringes here anyway. You see big studio flop after big studio flop, uh, films that cost $200 million to make, $200 million to market, and then they make $80 million at the cinema. You know, the, the, the industry is facing its own pressures here that maybe mm -hmm. it got a little too big for its own britches, generally speaking. Well, I will pick up on the optimism about that exponential growth that can happen when you get people into key positions for a number of reasons, you know, one of them even being mentorship. And I always think that it's important to address it at the top, but also sort of at the entry level and what's happening in terms of incentivizing underrepresented groups to get into uh, film and television, uh, university and college mm -hmm, programs. Mm -hmm. um, because I think when we look at uh, people with disabilities, that's where we've seen, you know, like there are people like myself working in the industry who don't have that background. But I have to say that at the time when I was considering my options out of high school, it really was not accessible to me. And I have yeah. to imagine that those barriers are there for uh, lots of other folks underrepresented in the industry trying to get in. So I think bringing people in at the ground level, uh, education, mentorship, apprenticeships, mm -hmm. and then also kind of at the top where they have the power to kind of actually create change. From point A to point Z, all the way through. Laura, thank you for this. Always nice chatting with you. Talk to you tomorrow. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain at the Entertainment Desk. Coming up after the break, Quebec's new language laws are creating consumer and business concerns. That story will be featured in the regional news update. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv and in audio at amiplus.ca. I'm Dave Brown. It's Wednesday, February 28th, 2024. Coming up in the second hour of the show, For the Culture is a documentary series on CBC that explores stories affecting black communities around the world. Amanda Paris will tell you more about it. And the Bell Media layoffs a few weeks ago catalyzed a de-amalgamation in the media industry. How could that impact local journalism? Kevin Shaw will react to that thought. That and so much more coming your way, but the hour begins with the regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, BC's Auditor General says the province is not effectively managing hazardous spills. Michael Pickup says the province's management plan needs to be modernized. In any of these areas, risks change, technology changes, um, what potentially could happen has changes as well, people change. So having a plan in place is important, and not only for, for documentation and being ready, but these are real issues. 
The BC government has accepted all nine of Pickup's recommendations. Over to the prairies, Alberta's seven-month pause on wind and solar developments is coming to an end. Michelle Zadikian takes a closer look. Greengate Power CEO Dan Balaban helped to develop the Travers Solar Farm in southern Alberta, one of the largest solar projects in the world. But he says his company is holding off on future projects in Alberta until it's sure renewable energy will be treated fairly in the province. He thinks Alberta's UCP government singled out the renewable energy sector by temporarily shutting down development in order to formulate new rules. He says it's a level of negativity and scrutiny that other industries aren't subjected to. Michelle Zedekian, the Canadian Press. And finally, in Quebec, Quebec's new language laws are creating business concerns. Nicole Reese explains. Elaine Elbogan is a Montreal-based intellectual property lawyer with law firm Faskin. She says the proposal means on and off labels, hot and cold settings, or the various spin cycles on a washing machine, for example, would have to be labeled in French. Megan Hatch, vice president and managing director of the Association of Home Appliance Manufacturers Canada, says a survey of her group's members indicated that around 90% of models in the Quebec market would not comply with the new rules. A spokesman for Quebec's French language minister, Jean-Francois Roberge, says the problem Province's language watchdog has documented a drop in the percentage of large appliances with French markings from around 80% in 1977 to less than 1% in 2021. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. Thank you very much, Nicole. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Toronto Blue Jays pitcher Eric Swanson is taking some time away from the team. Getham Kulba has the latest. Toronto Blue Jays reliever Eric Swanson has left the team to be with his family after his four-year-old son Toby was hit by a car Sunday. Manager John Schneider says Toby was airlifted to a hospital and he is, quote, on the road to recovery. Schneider also praised the first responders in Clearwater for their incredible work. Eric Swanson is going into his second season with Toronto and his sixth year in the majors. The six-foot-three right-hander is 8-14 and 14 with 10 saves and a 3.78 ERA in 195 games. I'm Gethin Kuhlbach. Brock, this story has you thinking about the human side of sports. Yeah. Uh, for me, this brings the uh, realness to light that exists in sports. Uh, we think of athletes and their families as almost invincible, and I think uh, time and time again, we see sports communities come together, and even beyond, I would argue, in situations like this. We've seen uh, other scenarios in the past where our communities have have uh, gotten together, I'll give you a few as an example. We've seen uh, former Calgary Flames assistant manager Chris Snow, who had a battle with ALS, and we saw the hockey community come together. We've also seen, obviously, uh, Mark Budzinski and his daughter for the uh, Blue Jays, who was the first base coach for them as well. And the one that really comes to mind for me is Kobe and Gianna Bryant. And we've seen those sort of incidents with that helicopter accident all bring communities together. And I think it's really important that we see athletes beyond the light of what they do under the lights of sports. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's one of the things that comes along with the prestige of the position and the, the spotlight of the position that 
it's easy to think about athletes as a member of your fantasy hockey team or your fantasy football team and not the person who has to live and breathe away from what they do. But Brock, I would also say that's not uncommon across society that really you might just look at your coworkers as coworkers. You might just look at someone who works in any profession as someone who's defined by that profession. So I think it's important when you think about the human side of athletes that you remember about the humanity of everyone and I know that sounds like I'm acting like Hulk Hogan cupping my hand to the to the to the to the to the crowd uh, to go for roars of applause and cheers but I think when you start talking about athletes and humanity you have to remember about actual just regular humans and humanity because every now and then the athletes end up getting the support the millionaires get the support that maybe everyday folk need as well yeah and I mean I we, we've talked about this type of thing that I'm going to bring up now on the program before but it, it becomes so ho-hum when you hear athletes who get traded um, from one location to another. And I think it's just becomes for society to just kind of shrug their shoulders and go, oh, well, they moved to another place. But we don't see the existing family that rolls in and has to make that change. And when tragedy exists in the one that we just highlighted and talking about, we kind of remember that, oh, yeah, there is a, a family involved. And we immediately go to... I hope Eric Swanson's son is okay and and recovered. And it goes beyond, oh, he's going to miss some time and that's too bad because we, we immediately go to, well, the guy needs to take some time with his family. And that's as simple as that. Brock, what's your experience been like in regards to rallying around teammates and your experience as a para-athlete? Uh, I have two uh, scenarios. I uh, competed with a lady who uh, competed with us at the uh, 2007 world championships in uh, british columbia who recently passed away and and she um hadn't played in the sport uh since uh the mid 2000s i would say and she recently passed away and i got the opportunity to uh, mc the national championships uh last year and we paid homage to her and the things that came out was her love of the game and her love of the sport and I think that's an example of of how it doesn't matter how long you've been away from the game. It's the impact that you draw, whether you're in the game or thereafter. And I think she's a perfect example. The second one that I would give you, Dave, is one that doesn't have as much of a, a, a tragic ending. But my teammate, uh, when we were in, um, in Europe, uh, she got bit by a bug and her leg swelled up and... Uh, and she had to go to the hospital and spend some time. And, and we were in Vienna, Austria, and we rallied around and said, let's do this for Tammy and let's win the gold medal. And, and we did. And I truly believe that that's because you rally around your friends and your teammates and your family and you say, let's do this for them. And I really think that's the beautiful thing that can exist in society, not only in sport, but beyond. Brock, thank you for this. Have a nice day. You as well. That is Brock Richardson at the AMI Sports Desk coming up after the break. The Bell Media layoffs led to some significant de-amalgamation in the media industry. How can that impact local journalism? Kevin Shaw will react to the news. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Bell Media shuttered a whole bunch of local radio stations a few weeks ago. That's the part of the story that was widely reported. What was reported a little bit less is the number of radio stations that ended up being bought by regional broadcast companies. So that issue and those layoffs have renewed the focus on the concept of de-amalgamation in the Canadian media landscape and what that could mean for local journalism. Kevin Shaw has some thoughts on this. Kevin is the host of Mind Your Own Business on AMI-tv. Hey, good morning, Kevin. Nice to chat with you today. Good morning, Dave. Thanks for having me yet again. <laughs> Always talking about layoffs in the media. You and I have found a little beat for ourselves here, but that's okay. Well, listen, I, you know, my, I my, my name's about to become Dr. Doom because every time I come on, I'm talking about some media organization that's like laying people off or going out of business. There's there's a little bit of doom, but I think somewhere in here, you and I are going to find some optimism. So let, let, let's start with perhaps a little bit of the pessimism. What's your mm -hmm. thought about the recent layoffs and their impact on the landscape of Canadian media? Well, I, this, this, it's huge. Um, you know, it's the end of an era. People need to remember that if this round of layoffs comes after yet another round of layoffs by Bell, uh, I think last summer, and they've now laid off a, a, a total of, I think, 10% of their workforce altogether. Uh, and this is a lot of local local stations, local radio, local TV, um, you know, huge hits to the journalism department. I, I've got friends who work at Bell uh, who were affected by, yeah, by this stuff. And, um, you know, it's not, it's not great for them, obviously, but I, I think it speaks to the shifting sands of, of the Canadian media landscape. People are cutting the cord, people are going online and they're getting, uh, you know, they're, they're getting Netflix and they're getting entertainment and news in different ways. And, you know, the, the big dinosaur media is, uh, is having to play catch up. Yeah. Specifically on the radio front, though, I think you and I have talked a lot about digital and television sure. in these conversations. Yeah. In this case, a lot of these layoffs fell in the radio landscape. And you've got a long time background in local radio. I've got a I long do, yeah. time background in yeah. local radio. It's still my first love in media. Same. What do you believe the importance of local radio is? Because ultimately that's at the crux of this. The consequences of losing local radio run a little bit deeper than just sort of a broader conversation about a, a, a crippling media landscape. Apologies for the ableism. Yeah. You know, look, um, Radio is always going to be magical. Um, walking by and seeing a DJ live, and then you know listening to your headphones and and hearing that in real time, there is there's nothing like it. Radio was a you know such a revolutionary technology in uh, back in the 19 teens and 20s. You know that magic never really went away, and you know we used to we used to sing songs about radio, the spirit of radio and listen to the radio and radio Gaga and so forth. And so it, it, it has a special place. Um, I think in this case, we're, we're looking at um, sort of the end of formulaic radio. And, and I've talked a little bit about this on my blog. I, I've got much more to say about this uh, as a recovering radio file. Um, but you know, I, I think that the uh, I think that the that the changes here are actually ultimately good for for local radio. 
Oh, okay, here's where you and I can find that common thread of optimism here, because I also have felt for the better part of 15 to 20 years, there's been way too much consolidation in the radio industry and not enough lo true local radio or at the very least regional radio networks. Mm -hmm. What are the benefits of moving more to this de-amalgamized model where maybe it's a smaller company like Vista Radio that owns 30 or 40 stations or my sure. FM that owns 20 or 30 stations, but that it's very regionally focused. Well, I mean, I'm going to give a shout out here to my my former history of news professor, Gene Allen, who um, wrote for the Globe and Mail and, and did a lot of journalism work because he talked about this in our history of news class. And if you look at the history of news and the history of media, uh, there is this theme of amalgamation, de-amalgamation, aggregation, disaggregation. And we're going through the cycle of disaggregation now where we have, um, in, in the radio business, we, we call them LMAs or local management arrangements. And so you might have, let's say, four FM, uh, four, FM uh, four AM stations in a market, and you've got them all housed out of the same building. Uh, using the same studios, using the same production facilities. Now that you don't have that anymore with, with some of these local stations being sold off, you, you don't have this genericization of radio where um, you're just going to go automatically to the format that's going to work, where it's all country, all rock, classic rock, um, top 40 and you can basically just ship a hard drive to these radio stations now and, and just have a couple of swing announcers come in, pay them part-time salaries, and, and just have them yak about, uh, you know, what song was played in the weather. Um, that, I think, thankfully, is going away. And now we can actually give control back to the people who actually have their hands on the equipment, actually have their hands on the buttons, and who can actually choose the music that we get to listen to on, on the radio and choose the talk that we get to listen yes, to as well. Yes, yes, where, that's where I think local radio can still be king when done properly. Yes actual yes. connection to a local community, whether that be the DJ, the DJ between songs or whether that be local talk radio. I, I know yep. that local talk radio can be tough in smaller markets, but it's only tough because it was never resourced properly. You didn't have enough people on beats around the city talking about stuff that actually matters to people. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think with the cost of production coming down, um, I mean, really, to run a radio station today, you don't need a, a huge overhead. Um, you know, if people are doing this on podcasts and, and going out and doing hyper-local stuff on, on pad podcasts, you know, with microphones that plug right into your computer and, and sound way better. I mean, I'm, I'm using a, you know, a, a ring light and a, and a lav mic here that I bought off of Amazon for, mm. you know, less than 200 bucks. And, uh, if you don't mind me saying so, I look and sound great, um, you know, according to your producer. Um, you know, uh, if we can do that for 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 local TV and, and uh, you know, a national broadcaster like AMI, just imagine what we can do with local radio. And, um, you know, once you've got a quiet room and, and a decent microphone, you, you've got a you've, you're ready to broadcast. Everything else is just, just going to come off the computer. And and um, I think this is a, a huge, huge uh, win for, for local markets 
and they can actually just start taking back control from uh uh you know these these kind of megaliths corp and and corporate giants that have have really set uh editorial policy and broadcast policy for a lot of these local radio stations there's one more question here and this may be a little too deep in the weeds but i know the conversation is happening in and around the industry and that's the regulatory side of this because i agree with you the actual active production the Barrier to entry has gone way, way down. But especially yeah. when you talk about local radio, you're still looking for access to the FM or AM band. And that requires some money on transponders and transmitters and also mm. regulatory approval. So what would you like to see from the regulatory framework in regards to local radio? Well, the CRTC wants to regulate a lot of stuff. Um, I, I think we've kind of hamstrung our, our, ourselves with with CanCon regulations, with um, the the way that formats are generally done now. Um, you know, with with the CRTC, I think a lot of these rules need to be relaxed so that we can allow for innovation. And you know, don't get me wrong, I, I think CanCon rules on radio have have done wonders for the Canadian music industry. Um, but I, I think it's time that we maybe consider relaxing some of those rules and allow what's great to float to the top in, in, in terms of music. Mm. Um, and in terms of talk, I, I don't think there should be a lot of regulation. Obviously, you know, you want to make sure that, that people are going on and using the airways responsibly. Um, you know, free speech is responsible speech, as I, as I like to say, or, or my high school motto is freedom with responsibility, uh, which which I, I firmly believe in. Um, and so, you know, if, if we have that mindset going into, uh, you know, a new broadcast space when we're licensing new AM and FM stations, uh, I, I don't think that there's going to be a lot for the CRTC to do other than making sure that people are, are following the Broadcast Act and, and uh you know, that they're putting decent content out. Yeah, if, if you're going to put guardrails, make the guardrails reasonable. Kevin, one of the reasons yeah. why I framed that question for you is there are people in the industry who are talking about Canadian content. And you and I have, have batted Canadian content back and forth <laughs> a couple times together. We we had some commonality and we had some disagreement. But pe what people in, the, in some corners of the industry are calling for is even for a music station to say Canadian content can be defined differently. Because for years and years, you could only get your Canadian content from the music under a very specified formula. And what people yeah. in the industry are saying is, hey, what about my local news update? Shouldn't that count as Canadian content? What about my sure. local weather forecast? What about shouting out local community events? Doesn't that constitute Canadian content as well? And I find that argument to be persuasive. I might not agree with it 100%, but I do find it to be persuasive. Well, I mean, the, the, the question here is, are we creating Canadian culture with the content that we're putting on the air? Oh, I like that. And culture comes from music. Culture comes from artistic creations that, that uh, you know, actually have some level of creativity around them. Um, I don't know that, that, that I would agree that, let's say, weather or news would constitute driving Canadian culture. Um, you know, that, that comes from music, that comes from TV, that comes from story, uh, that comes from things that are actually, that are actually making culture and, and, you know, sure, um, 
Drake is as much uh, Canadian culture as Celine Dion or Shania Twain or, um, you know, any of these other, you know, maestro, any of these other people that that have gone out and built Canadian culture to the point where um, we have things that are uniquely ours. Um, you know, I think maybe a further conversation for us to have in the future is is the the role of AI that that's uh, going to be played in radio oh, no. really soon. Oh, gosh, <laughs> when uh, you know your local weather forecast and news is is done by an AI bot. Oh man, <laughs> um, you know, but but people want to follow their muse and and Canadian culture and music and 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 creative efforts are are a huge part of that and i don't think that's ever going to go away yeah to a degree that's already happening when my echo gives me the weather forecast in the morning when i ask her to uh, play some music for me (laughs) uh kevin you look good you sound good and you're also a super smart guy thank you for taking the time today thanks dave (laughs) that's kevin shaw he's the host of mind your own business mind your own business airs wednesdays at 9 p.m eastern time on ami tv and then you can catch it on demand at ami plus coming up after the break maybe pessimism maybe optimism future of the planet and environmental concerns alex smythe bringing that uplifting subject to the round table this is now with dave brown on ami tv It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Here's a super easy question for you to nosh on first thing on a Wednesday morning. How optimistic are you about the future of the planet? Goodness gracious, Alex Smythe, you're bringing this to the roundtable today. I am, Dave, because last night I was uh, checking out Crave, trying to find something to watch, and I came across this new series called An Optimist's Guide to the Planet, which is hosted by Nikolai Koster-Waldau of Game of Thrones fame jamie lannister himself and basically he noted 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 climatologist jamie lannister exactly but he goes around the world exploring the work being done to kind of protect the future of the planet from environmental and climate changes and the central question that really gets posed throughout this series is the idea of how optimistic are you about the future of the planet i kind of got myself (laughs) thinking and i find it a very fascinating question so i wanted to bring it to the round table because a lot of people feel quite pessimistic so i'm going to ask you first ramia how do you feel about the future of the planet? Are you optimistic, pessimistic, somewhere in between? Oh my gosh, Alex, there's so many layers to this question. Like the first thing I think of is how optimistic about my own actions towards climate awareness or uh, climate change or just bettering the planet. And then I think I expand out and I think, okay, but is are the bigger people, the, um, the people in charge, are they doing better? Are they setting better examples? Um, I don't, I want to say I am hopeful because there is a lot going on. There's a lot of ideas, um, idea finding, idea sharing. Uh, There are a lot of very tactile ways that people want to get involved and are saying, hey, this is how we can actually make better. And that is across the board. I'm talking, you know, students um, in in younger years in high school and uh, people who are taking part in all kinds of like ways that they really want to make big picture changes 
But then I think there are all these ideas and how much of that is actually being utilized or or ran with. You yeah, know, like, yeah. Right? Like the Shark Tank approach, like the, the people with the money and the people with the power, are they saying, okay, yeah, this is great. Um, I'll, I'm in. And, and I'm, in if I can, I'm in if I can monetize it and line my <laughs> yeah. pockets more with it. <laughs> Whatever. Like, I don't even care why, but I really wish that the people who could make that difference by taking these ideas and, you know, making it big, um, I don't know if they're doing enough of it. So that's what makes me pessimistic. Ramya, you're you're right to say there's so many layers to this, right, Alex? The, the question you're asking yeah. is a loaded question. It's, it's that, very loaded. That could be unpacked in a million different ways. Mm-hmm. How optimistic am I about the future of the planet? Like, not at all, man. Like, <laughs> like wasn't in, wasn't Pakistan 50% underwater two summers ago? Wasn't mm-hmm. half of North America on fire last summer? There's droughts all over Europe. There's food chain issues. Uh, the oceans are the icebergs are melting into the ocean. Like, like I am not optimistic at all about the future of the planet, but where I find optimism is sort of what Rumia is talking about here. There is innovation going on. It's just going too slowly, whether it be uh, renewables, whether it be the notion of renewable energy, or whether it be the actual adaptation and planning for climate disaster. I've been banging this table for four or five years. No matter where you stand on renewable energy or your thoughts on climate change, you need to accept that climate disasters are happening and we remain as a culture woefully unprepared to help people mm. so alex my, my my little bits of optimism are totally shaded by my actual pessimism of real world More events of- yeah dave uh you know i i think that part i i I feel very aligned with a lot of what you're saying in terms of, you know, you, you can't discount or, or kind of deny the sheer impact of environmental disasters and, and just the sheer volume of catastrophes, emergencies that we've been experiencing in such a short period of time. The thing that kind of gets lost or, or doesn't get talked about is when we do actually address some major things, like think back to the 90s, what were some of the biggest environmental uh, scares, fears, challenges, ozone layer. the ozone layer, and acid rain. Those two things have actually been improved upon through action, through courses. And this is something that does get uh, mentioned in the series. But you know what happens? We just stop talking about it. We move on to something. We don't celebrate the fact that, oh, we actually did address these things. So I think that kind of builds in and adds to that fear that, oh, no, everything is hopeless. We can't in invoke change we can't address these things like you know the idea it's like oh the 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 oceans are warming oh coral reef bleaching things like that work is being done to address it whether or not it's on a global scale now no but there are people who are working to invest in it there are people who are also investing in these things too like there there are several different awards and programs i know uh, prince william has a, a major one where he gives out millions of dollars to help fund and support and grow environmental projects to help make uh, improve sustainability around the world those things need to get celebrated just as much as the disasters are being covered i think otherwise you get into this doom spiral of fear and and uh, concern that okay you know the, all these uh, issues we're combating are really hopeless and that feels into the pessimism that people often feel Romeo small changes can lead to big results uh, even though I understand what Alex is saying and even though I do believe we probably should be platforming success when it occurs mm. I I just I the problem feels bigger than Prince William having a foundation.
Yeah, like the the most direct way that I feel the problem gets bigger is that we're not balancing out how much we're trashing the planet with how quickly we're fixing yeah, right. that aspect of it. You <laughs> right. know what I mean? Like we're we're moving so fast in one direction and we've been doing that for decades and centuries and then now we're like, uh oh, let's uh pause all this and move to something better. But that is, you know, years more worth of work and change and um, you know, uh, uh, ideas being understood and just the concept being understood and agreed on. Like there's just a lot going on and like i said going back to what i originally said small ideas do make big results dave but the people we need more people to help make those small power. ideas become big power yeah, yeah. yeah. listen and and, money. and 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 listen there are governments around the world doing things i talked to, i talked about the amount of money that uh mainland europe spent in the last couple of years to develop renewable energy independence in the wake of russia's invasion of ukraine both to make sure their own energy supplies were high enough, but it has also dampened inflation a little bit on the continent of Europe. Now, that cost trillions of dollars to do, but they had to do it because there was urgency. So, Alex, that's, that's my concern. My concern is that, in general, for all the small victories that you're right to point out, it's not until urgency hits that there's macro change and the mm -hmm. true change that's needed. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think there's a a, a large um, subset of the population. They they don't concern themselves with issues or, or addressing needs for change until it directly impacts them. And that urgency has to play a role in that. Uh, because we, we've seen it in terms of how, you know, scientists are, are viewed or, or their opinions are valued in, in many different fields, whether it's environment and climate change, the fact that we still have these kind of discussions climate change well can we actually it went from doesn't exist to no we can't actually do anything about it mm. um I, and i i think though we as the 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 younger population we talked about this uh, i believe it was last week how the millennial uh, generation is now the biggest subsect in in canada well you know environmental issues and and our big concerns for the millennial population and gen z well now we can we can use our, our voting power. We can start electing officials. We can start trying to push for that change <laughs> on a, uh, a broader and grander scale. Well, there's about to be the polar opposite in Canadian federal politics, so I wouldn't be too optimistic uh, about that. Not that I think the Liberals' uh, environmental policy is all that clean right now, but uh, there, there, there's about to be a change in Canadian politics in the next 18 months that will be the opposite of what you're talking about, Alex. Okay, let's try to wrap this up. Maybe not necessarily on fun per se but uh, I would suggest to you that the part of the country where we live is uh, pretty good on the environmental fronts you know maybe a heat wave here and there maybe a thunderstorm yesterday in the afternoon but Ramya the black widow spiders have made their way into Windsor Ontario I'm a little concerned here about migration here species migration the black widows are coming from Windsor the great white sharks are now all over Halifax and Newfoundland and Labrador in Nova Scotia. Ramya, would you move if too many creepy crawlies started making their way into our lives? Probably, but where, Dave? Like, you need to give me ideas of where I can Winnipeg? Move. No Black Widow spiders in Winnipeg. 
Winnipeg, but then we have to start talking about all the other stuff that's, uh, you know, I've got to drop and sacrifice to live in Winnipeg. I don't oh, easy, know. easy. Don't be, don't be trashing Winnipeg I'm here, Ron. I'm not Rania. trashing. I'm just loving Toronto. Um, but as the <laughs> but north really... warms, you know what's going to happen? The polar bears start making their way south. So, you know, that's a whole different scenario. You ran from the Black Widow spiders, but now the polar bears are coming. Yeah, I might prefer the polar bears. I don't know. I don't know. But you're, you're, uh, you're making me think because I, because <laughs> I often wonder, like, if I wasn't living here, where else would I live, and what that would mean for just like you said, environmental disasters and um, climate and weather. And, and really, we do have it good here. Our producer Bob was showing me pictures of anacondas yesterday that were found in Brazil. So I would also pass on living Oof. in the rainforest. Alex, <laughs> uh, you've spent some time in Manitoba. You've gone up north around the polar bears. Black widow spiders or polar bears? What's giving you more pause? Oh, polar bears give me much more pause. Black willow spiders are just being spiders. Polar bears hunt humans, Dave. Let's be clear. We are on that food chain with them. So uh, they definitely scare me more. And, uh, you know, I... We, we already have black widows in southern Ontario. You know, we don't have a lot of them, thankfully. They're making their way up. But, uh, you know, a polar bear is, polar is a far more terrifying thing. If the Mississauga rattlers start making their way down from the Barry area, we'll have rattlesnakes coming from the north and black widow spiders coming from the south. And next thing you know, we live in Australia. Uh, Ramya, <laughs> Alex, thank you for this. Ramya, before you go away, what's coming up on Kelly and Ramya today at 2 p.m. Eastern time? We're being closed in, are we? Oh, yeah. Okay, so we have Corinne Van Dusen with our entertainment report, and she's talking about four new Beatles biopics that are in production uh, in production right now. Um, also, we're talking to community reporter Vic Pereira, who's talking about tandem biking for an upcoming expo that he's training for. And uh, that's in Manitoba. And we're talking about accomplishments of Canadian women uh, with the new National Women's Day event that's coming up to celebrate March 8th. And we're talking about that with Wendy Donnan. Um, we're looking forward to that chat as well. I'm going to tell Vic what you said about Winnipeg, and then I'll let, him, I'll let you guys work it out. Okay, well, I, mean, I can tell it myself. I'm not scared. <laughs> Rumya doesn't live in fear, uh, unless unless it's polar bears. No, unless it's Black Widow spiders. spiders. Uh, Rumya, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. <laughs> That's Ramya and within coming up after the break for the culture is a CBC documentary series that explores stories affecting black communities around the world. Host Amanda Paris gives you the scoop. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. For the Culture is a point-of-view documentary series on CBC Gem. It's hosted by Amanda Paris. Over the course of six episodes, Amanda dives deep into the lived experiences of black communities around the world. Here's a clip from the show's trailer. I am constantly thinking about culture, race, and social issues. When African Americans do depictions of Caribbean people and the accents are terrible. I want to push these conversations forward. I'm leaving the wars raging on social media, and I'm traveling to where the stories are. It's about honoring my ancestors. I want to talk to black folks from across the diaspora. Because of what I look like, because of what I am, the British industry boxed me in. 
I want to make space for urgent conversations. Black children are being harassed routinely. Six countries, six episodes. Let's imagine new possibilities. We want to be modern day 21st century revolutionaries. Because now is the time to take the group chat to the real world. Well, let's drink to that. Amanda Paris is an award-winning writer and the executive producer of For the Culture, as well as the host. Hey, Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you for making a little bit of time this morning. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. So where did this all start? Why did you want to create this Point of View documentary series? Yeah, I pitched this series in 2020, which was a year where a very significant year for all of us. And like so many, I'm sure I was stuck in my house and just really hungry to be out in the world. And I was just daydreaming about traveling and wondering if, you know, all these places that I have on my bucket list, I'd ever get a chance to see. And at the same time, a lot of the conversations I was having with folks was happening on social media, WhatsApp groups, Twitter, which was great. But I really missed having conversations with people in person, uh, you know, just hearing the tone of their voice, just being in the same space as them. And so those two desires kind of merged together to shape the form of the show. And then in terms of the topics, it was just a lot of the things that I was talking about with folks um, in my group chats and uh, on the phone. Our Business of Black Hair episode, for example, was inspired by my conversations with my hairdresser, who, you know, I'm often in her chair for hours at a time, and she is telling me all about her trials and tribulations in the industry. And I was always like, someone should do something about this. And so that you know, sparked an episode. I got pregnant in 2020 and had a really challenging experience navigating the healthcare system. And through reading and doing a little bit more research, realized that my story was very connected to a larger theme and that led to our Black maternal health episode. So, you know, the topics in some cases are very personal or just about things that I'm interested in and that I was talking about with my friends, family and community. And so that really shaped the show. The word wide-ranging is sometimes overused in our industry, but in the description you gave there and in some of the episodes that I had a chance to take in, uh, wide-ranging is definitely the word. How did you navigate that? How did you start creating the connective tissue within episodes, but also thinking about the broader connective point within the series? Yeah, I think the what I knew from the beginning was that I wanted a show that although each episode would be distinct and different, that the things that it would share in common was that, one, it was a journey. Uh, we would go on an adventure out in the world. We would meet Black folks from across the globe, hopefully. Our three kind of core locations were Canada, the U.S., and the U.K., um, and I really wanted us to have conversations across those borders. And then we had some really interesting moments where people across episodes felt like they were talking to each other. So for example, a lot of the parents and students in our education episode would talk about their frustrations with these systems that are not changing and that feel like they're not gonna change anytime soon and, um, and, and were frustrated about the limitations that all of these years of activism that black communities have done uh, haven't resulted in very fundamental change in these education systems. And then in my Diaspora Wars episode, I spoke to a parent named Zoe Smith, who had the same frustrations in the UK, and because of those frustrations, chose to take her three kids and move them to live in Grenada, where they wouldn't have to deal with the same sort of racial challenges that they were dealing with in the UK. And so even though they are two completely different episodes, they're responding to similar experiences, um, and we're kind of having conversations with each other, and that happened a few times across the episodes, which was really, felt very synchronistic. I don't know if you want to pat yourself on the back too much on this front, but uh, but, but 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 I think I think you, I think you deserve it. What does that say about your approach to platforming authentic people? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, there was a version of the show, an early pitch where we were like, oh, we're going to get so many big names and we're, we are going to pack this with so many famous people. And, you know, none of those famous people called us back. So when they didn't call us back, we're like, huh, (laughs) you know, okay, plan B, but plan B turned out to be the better plan. It was always uh, the idea that even if we had some bigger names, there would always be people who are on the front lines of the issue at the center of the show. And so the bigger names were more so about, you know, hoping to get audience interested, but there would always be people on the front lines. And what ended up happening is that they just became the dominant force. And we were really lucky to find such incredible folks. Um, And, you know, what that also means is that you kind of have to prepare them. These are often folks that have never spoken in front of a camera and don't do a ton of media. They don't have their speaking points uh, right in front of them. And that was actually really beautiful. Um, We would do really long pre-interviews. We would make sure that our interview time was really long as well, too. Mm -hmm. So I'm used to spaces where you only have like seven minutes in and out, you know, and this was not the case. Sorry to our editors for how much they had to go through, but we really (laughs) wanted to spend time with people um, and get them comfortable and not just march and dive right into the very hard issues in some cases that we were asking them to talk about, but build and get there eventually. And I think I really love that approach. I'm, I'm a big fan of long form interviewing in general and being able to like have a space and t- have space and time with a person. And we were able to do that with this show. And I think, you know, I'm really proud of the results of uh, and what we were able to achieve by taking that approach. I, I still send emails to my old editor uh, apologizing for uh, all the t- all the editing I put him through as well. I, <laughs> I, I get where you're coming from, but that's where you get those great morsels yeah. of conversation yeah. where you're not trying to rush through with someone like that. That's exactly. that, that's where the beauty of the format lives. Mm-hmm. I, I completely agree with you. And it's, you know, it's not doable for daily news. You know, that's kind of an impossible task, but for documentary, which is what we were doing, you know, that we, I really asked for that, that time and kind of said it from the beginning, this is going to be a requirement. It's part of what I want to move into as a host. I really love those opportunities and I'm really glad we got to do that. What what were some of your own takeaways from your experience as you reflect and as you went through the post-production process, what was particularly impactful for you? I mean, there are quite a few things. I mean, there are so many episodes that were very personally motivated. The Black Maternal Health episode, as I mentioned, was really inspired by my experience going through the healthcare system. And um, I learned so much while making that episode about uh, the ways that this system is set up not to create a space of care, but more so efficiency um, for so many folks. Uh, And I think that's true across racial lines. But when you see the there's a, such a discrepancy um, for Black uh, birthing people and Black pregnant people um, in the UK, in the US, that has been documented. But here in Canada, we most provinces do not track race-based health data, mm-hmm. and so the the challenge here is even getting to prove that this is an issue and that this is something that is happening. But we spoke to a number of Black frontline healthcare providers um, who said, without a doubt we are seeing the same stories that you see in the UK and the US happening here. We just don't have the evidence and the data to prove it. We only have the stories and that's not enough to get the kind of grants that you need to create intervention. And so I felt a strong sense of urgency with that episode about the kind of change that I hope that it helps to inspire the way that the episode can be utilized as a tool by those that are already pushing for this change. Mm. Um, So that was really impactful. And in our Glass Cliff episode, which, you know, talks about the workplace, we had these really powerful moments from folks who are brave enough to talk about their experience in the workplace while still being in it. 
Um, and so that was just, uh, it was a very high risk episode for a lot of folks. And for me as a, as a host and as a producer, I just felt a large sense of responsibility to take care of those people because they trusted us with their stories. Um, in one instance, um, one of the women actually resigns within the interview. And uh, yeah, it was just a very powerful episode. And I, and I, you know, my, my goal was to make sure that people understood what they were going through and could connect it to something larger and that we did justice by their stories. Folks can find For the Culture streaming on CBC Gem, an app that I absolutely adore. I just love using it. It's so easy to use and there's all kinds of great stuff there, but look for For the Culture. But Amanda, what's next for you? Before you get out of here, what's going on? Want to get the plugs in? I, there's no plugs. I'm literally resting. <laughs> wait, wait are, you, are you, my... <laughs> wait, are you saying making a six-part documentary series was tiring in some way? It, it was a tad. It was a tad. And so I am taking a break, and I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that we get a season two. And if not, then I'll make some plans. But for now going on vacation with the family and just trying to rest. Oh, that sounds uh, really, really lovely. Uh, how many, like, again, how, how much time did you end up spending away from home while you were doing this? I imagine it was quite a bit. Yeah, we would try to make this each trip quite short because I have a three-year-old. Um, but yeah, it was it was a significant amount. We, we filmed for six months. Some of that filming did take place in Toronto, but it, it's. It, I, I thought when the filming was done that I would be like, oh, now I'm home, and it was not the case because you know the edit is so intense yeah, as well yeah. too. So yeah, it was a pretty um, challenging time. So I'm really grateful to just spend a little bit more time at home and hang out with my kid. Three uh, three year olds are probably the most demanding boss out there. I think there's probably something to that. <laughs> Amanda, thank you for I this. Agree. <laughs> Congra thank con you. Congratulations on the docuseries. It's really excellent work. Uh, all the best to you, and let's catch up again down the road. That sounds great. Thanks so much. That's Amanda Paris, host, executive producer of For the Culture, which again, you can find streaming on CBC Gem. Just uh, download the app and check out For the Culture. Really, really cool stuff. And a big thanks to uh, them for sending along a couple episodes for me to take in. Really, really enjoyed it. I want to remind you about the daily poll at Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. The University of Waterloo is removing 29 vending machines that were caught using facial recognition technology. What's your relationship with facial recognition technology? Good, bad, or blissfully unaware? There is something to be said about being blissfully unaware in this world. At Accessible Media on X, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a ring, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up on the show tomorrow, there's a new affordable housing initiative in London, Ontario. Brian Orr from PHSS tells you all about the program. You know the show kicks off at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on the mighty airwaves of AMI-TV or in audio at amiplus.ca. Don't forget, you can also catch the show on demand. If you miss it, just head on over. Favorite podcasting platform, search for Now with Dave Brown. Don't forget to write, subscribe, and review. Until tomorrow, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun.
Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.